Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would pour out grace upon me to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Lord, I need your help. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, I want to speak and preach in such a way to please you. And, Father, I also pray that as your word goes forth, that you would encourage the downcasts, that you would give hope to the hopeless. I pray that on this day, July 1st, that someone would be able to say that they gave their life to Jesus, that they found true hope in Christ, who was able to save the most vilest sinner. I pray, Father, for us who are believers who are struggling, maybe in a place of deep darkness, that you would shine light upon our souls today and that we would praise you once again for you are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our God. So, oh God, would you fill us with hope this morning? And I pray, Father, that we would burst out in praise. I pray this in the name of your matchless Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, ARC, I just started reading a book by John Piper called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. Faithful, Flawed, and Fruitful. I love that title, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. Faithful, but they were also flawed, but they were still fruitful. And I read about three men this week. Uh, one of the men that I read about, his name is John Bunyan. And I learned that John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel. Now, it's one thing to spend 12 years in prison for preaching the gospel, and you're, you're in there because you just really can't do nothing about it. But it's a whole nother thing when you spend 12 years in prison um, because you're doing it voluntarily. They told John Bunyan that if you just stop preaching the gospel, we'll let you go. But because he refused to stop preaching Christ and him crucified, he stayed in prison for 12 years. Um, he had a little girl named Mary who was born blind. And, you know, his, his story unfolds and talks about how his, his, his daughter Mary came to visit him one day in prison. And he's looking at his blind daughter, and he says this, 
it felt like the skin was being ripped off of my body. Because he was looking at his blind daughter and he wanted to care for his daughter so bad. He wanted to come out of prison and be there. But he knew that he had a commitment to keep. Even in the midst of such pain, he continued to preach Christ and him crucified. And when he was hopeless, he found his hope in God. I read about another guy by the name of David Brainer. Um, who at the age of 22, when he was a sophomore, decided to go uh, minister the gospel to American Indians. And this man, David Brainer, he also had tuberculosis. It was so bad to the point where he would cough up blood. I mean, if there was doctors, they would say, there's no way that you should be going to the mission field ministering to American Indians, the stress alone is going to be too much for you in this condition. But he ended up going and he ended up ministering the gospel to American Indians faithfully, and God used him powerfully. And he died at the age of 29. A lot of us wouldn't know about David Brainer if it wasn't for Jonathan Edwards, who ended up writing um, his diary or publishing his diary the life and diary of David Brainer, um, a book that has been used to propel many missionaries to go to the mission field. But here is another man who suffered greatly, but God used his life powerfully. Here was a man who felt hopeless at times, but trusted in God who is his hope. And then this week, the, the last person I read about was a man by the name of William Copper, uh, William Copper was a hymn writer, and as I read more about him, I learned that he was a man who struggled with deep depression, um, so much so that he was admitted into an insane asylum. And in that um, insane asylum, one of the doctors handed him a Bible, <laughs> and here it is, William Copper started reading through the Bible, and he was rocked by the grace of God. And he, he ended up giving his life to the Lord Jesus Christ inside of the insane asylum. And then a year after, he came out and he met a man by the name of John Newton. <laughs> a lot of us know of John Newton. He wrote that song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch <laughs> like me. He met John Newton, and John Newton became his pastor. Um, and they actually collaborated on writing hymns together. And this man, um, William Copper, um, he wrote, struggling with depression, struggling with despair. But even as he struggled, there were beautiful hymns that were birthed from his soul, like the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, he wrote another hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. We sing that song. That came from William Copper, um, who struggled with depression, um, who struggled so much even to the point when he wanted to take his life. There was times where he wanted to die. That's how much he struggled with depression. But he continued to hope in God. And even in the midst of his depression, he was looking up looking up, and he was able to write words like, there was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all (laughs) of their guilty stains. I bring these men up before you just to show that there's been men and women all throughout history who have struggled deeply with being downcasts. Men and women all throughout history who have struggled deeply with feeling despair. But God still used them mightily, no matter how much they struggled. In Psalm 42, we're going to see that the psalmist is struggling deeply, deeply with depression, deeply with despair, deeply with discouragement. But we also see that he's striving and fighting to find his hope in God, in God. Many scholars don't know for sure who wrote this song or when it was written. Some say that the psalmist in Psalm 42 is David. Um, Others say that it's King Hezekiah. Um, Others say that the psalmist in Psalm 42 was a wandering Levite who was far away from the temple in Jerusalem and who was longing to get back to the temple to worship with the people of God. I lean more to the psalmist being David, but whoever this psalmist is, what we know for sure that um, this psalm in Psalm 42 is one of the mis- uh, Miskal or Maskal Psalms. Um, the Maskal Psalms, um, it means a psalm of instruction. So this was a psalm to instruct us, a song of instruction. Um, and this psalm teaches us how to hope in God in difficult times. This is the reason why we need to read it and reread it and read it to each other, and read it again to ourselves. Because this psalm teaches us how to hope in God in difficult times, and we all face difficult times. We all face trials. And this is why we need good theology for real life. We could turn in many places, but today we're going to look at Psalm 42. And in this psalm, we are going to look at four things about the psalmist in chapter 42. Number one, we're going to look at the reason for his depression. That's in verses 1 through 4. Two, we're going to look at the remedy for his depression. That's in verse 5. Three, we're going to look at the relentless war within. That's in verses 6 through 10. And four, we're going to look at the remedy for his despair revisited. That's in verse 11. So if you would, look with me at verse 1. The Bible reads, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul For you, O God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When we look at this verse, a lot of times we 
automatically think of a picture that we have saw. <laughs> when we see a deer by a brook, peaceful, drinking some water, and then you see that verse right next to it, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That is not what's going on here. That is not the picture that is being painted here. The picture that's being painted here is a deer that is trying to do everything that it can to get to water. A deer that is panting, a deer that is dehydrated, trying to get to water. A deer that must get to water or they're going to dehydrate. This is desperation here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. The psalmist is saying, as a deer is looking for water and searching for water, in need of water, I am searching and in need of God. And he says very clearly, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. This is not a dead God. This is a living God who provides living water for his children. The psalmist was longing to be with God in the house of God. His heart feels sick because he is alienated from corporate worship at the temple in Jerusalem. I'm not exactly sure what the circumstances was at that time, but we do know that the psalmist is longing for the house of God. I think it's interesting that he ends up saying, my soul thirsts for God, versus my soul, my soul hungers for God. A person can live without food for a few weeks, maybe even up to a month. But a person can live for only a matter of a few days without water because our bodies are made of about 60% of water and every living cell in our bodies need water for functioning. He says, I'm thirsting. I'm desperate. I need you. I want you. And then he goes on to say, when shall I come and appear before my God? When shall I come and appear before my God? He's talking about wanting to be back in the place where the saints gathered to worship their creator, to worship their Lord. Now, the psalmist clearly knows that God is present everywhere. But there's something very unique that he knows that happens when we gather together as a corporate body. And he misses being with the saints. He misses being with the believers. He misses worshiping and lifting his hands with others. He misses being in the fellowship of his brothers and sisters. So when he says, when shall I come and appear before my God? He knows God is present everywhere, but he wants to be back in the house of God. He wants to be back in the house of his Lord. I think 
The psalmist here is an example of how we ought to long to be in the house of the Lord. How we ought to not take that lightly. I think there's a reason why the Bible says to not forsake or not to neglect the fellowship with the saints as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Because there's an importance there's, there's something that happens when we gather with each other in one location, worshiping our Savior and worshiping our Lord. There's something that happens when we sing songs to our Lord and other people hear the songs being sung. There's a way that it encourages us and builds us up. There's something that happens when we could come and pray for each other and be prayed for. There's a uniqueness, and he longs for that. In verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. My tears have been my food day and night. Have you ever been in a place when you have been so downcast to where you feel like you can't eat? You feel so driven to despair to where you feel like you can't even think about putting food in your mouth. Have you ever been so depressed to where you've laid in the bed and you felt like, I don't want to get out because I don't want to do anything. I just want to stay here in the bed. Have you ever been so downcast to where you feel like, I just don't want to be around anyone right now. Have you ever felt depression so deeply that you can't stop crying? Many of us have felt that in different ways whether it was a loved one dying, a family member dying, maybe depression from what's going on politically and ways that it has affected you personally, maybe directly or indirectly with people you know. But we've all been in a place where we've been driven to despair. The psalmist here says that his tears have been his food day and night. He's like, man, I haven't even been eating. I've been crying so much. I mean, that's how downcast I've been. I've been crying so much that I'm not even thinking about food. And then he goes on to say this, while they say to me all the day long, this is what they say, where's your God? So he's already battling with inward trials, deep depression, feeling deeply downcast. And then there's outward trials of people taunting him and saying, where's your God? This God that you pray to, this God that you love, where's your God? Why is he not coming through now? Where is your God? That's like adding insult to injury. His enemies 
are adding insult to injury when they say, where's your God? Where's your God? In verse 4, he says, the psalmist says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. And here's the things that he says he remembers. How I would go with the throng or the crowd. Throng could be translated crowd and lead them in procession a number of people, to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's like, man, I remember when I used to go with crowds, how we used to go together to the house of God. The, the joy that I experienced when we used to go together and I would sing songs with them in praise, with a multitude-keeping festival. It's like, man, I remember that. I mean, you can tell he longs to be with the people of God and longs to be in the place of worship with the people of God. So here's a question to ask. Do you long to be in the house of God like that? And it's just a question to ask and to think about. I know many of us do. But I know that there's also a lot of people that try to find excuses not to be in the house of God. Some may say, I don't feel like going today. I can understand if something comes up to where a person really can't make it, but just to say, I don't feel like going today just because you don't feel like going today, um, it actually puts us in a position where we are neglecting commands like where it tells us to not forsake gathering together. Um, not only that, it puts us in a position to where we are not having our hearts exhorted, as it says, to exhort one another daily so that your heart doesn't fall into the hardness of sin. There's something that happens when we gather together and exhort one another, and we're exhorted. There's grace applied to our lives where our hearts are softened. There's something that happens when we gather and we hear the preaching of the word together. We're able to rejoice as a community opening up God's word. As the psalmist longed to be with the people of God in God's house, do we long in that way? And I pray for us who do, God would create a greater longing to be with one another in the house of God with each other. And for those who struggle and say, man, I don't know whether I should go or not, I pray that God would create a passion and a desire in you to see the importance of being with each other in the corporate gathering. In verse 5, we see the remedy for the psalmist's depression. He says in verse 5, why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil, meaning great disturbance within me? And then he says this. He speaks to himself. Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation, the beginning of verse 6, and my God. I love what we see the psalmist doing here. The psalmist is assessing himself. <laughs> Have you ever thought about when you're struggling with despair to take the time to assess yourself? 
to take the time to ask yourself, what is going on? The psalmist here is assessing himself, asking the question, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in great distress within me? And then he speaks to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know who the biggest influence on your life is? It's you. And the reason why it's you is because we're constantly thinking about certain things. And if they're negative things and we're feeding into those things, those things are determining how we think, how we act, how we perceive things, how we see life. But we can also be a healthy, biblical influence on ourselves by speaking God's word consistently into our lives by casting down thoughts that try to exalt itself above the knowledge of God that are negative, by casting them down and infusing thoughts in those places that are truth. So may we influence ourselves with God's word, with God's truth, with God's promises, because our flesh is always trying to influence us with negative thoughts. So when we're struggling with despair, the question that must be asked is, what's the answer? And I know this may sound like a cliche, but this is the answer. Hope in God. It sounds very simple, and you're like, well, is there more? Hope in God. Hope in His truth. Hope in His promises. Hope in who he is. Hope in God. Our trials in life will either drive us to God or they will drive us away from God. It all depends on what you're hoping in. If you're hoping in God, your trials will drive you to God. We heard that um, when 2 Corinthians chapter 1 was read where it talks about how Paul was driven to the point of despair. But he says it was so that he wouldn't hope in himself, but that he would hope in God, that he would look to God, the one who's able to raise the dead. So if our confidence and hope is in God, trials drive us to God. But if our confidence and hope is in something else, then if we believe God just with our heads, but haven't really surrendered our lives to him, then when things come our way, it will drive us away from God, and we will actually try to find our hope in other things, our hope in relationships, our hope in the liquor bottle, our hope in drugs, our hope in trying to get a better career. But the Bible tells us to not try to medicate our despair with hoping in all of these other things, but to hope in God. The true antidepressant <laughs> is Jesus. It's God. So the Bible says that we ought to hope in him. Now, for unbelievers, if you don't know Jesus, 
you really don't have true hope. The Bible makes it very clear in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Covenants of promise. Listen to this. Having no hope and without God in the world. So unbelievers, they don't have no hope, and they're without God in the world. And if you haven't repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are without hope, because hope, true hope, is found in Jesus. True hope is found in the Son of God. And I want to give you hope today that if you feel driven to despair and you've tried to find hope in so many other things and you've found that it's never given you hope, know that true hope is in Christ. And God offered his son freely on your behalf. Christ died on the cross for your sins. God wrapped himself in flesh and dwelt among us. He was born of a virgin. He walked this earth, and where we are tempted and given to sin all of the time and struggle, Christ was tempted. He never, ever gave in to sin. As a matter of fact, he kept God's law perfectly, perfectly. And he was crucified on a cross for sinners like you and like me. And on that cross, he was crushed under the wrath of God. He was crushed in my place. He was crushed in your place. And the Bible says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is hope for you to have everlasting life. But that hope comes from putting your trust in Jesus, who was crucified, who died, and who rose, who sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for the saints. I love that hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing else than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Our hope is upon Jesus Christ. May your hope rest upon Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus, the one who is perfectly righteous, he who knew no sin, who became sin, so that sinners like us can become the righteousness of God. If you put your hope in him, you will be saved, forgiven, given eternal life, and a hope that is unshakable. But you must turn to him. So today I tell you, if you're struggling with hope and asking, where is hope? Hope is found right here. Hope is found in God's word. Hope is found in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hmm. Father, I pray that you would fill your people with hope, a hope that can only come from you. In Jesus' name, amen. The next thing we see in verses 6 through 10 is the relentless war within. Believers at times are like a seesaw, <laughs> like a seesaw going back and forth, right? 
we go back and forth between courage and discouragement, fear and faith, belief and unbelief. Believers are like a seesaw. And you see this happening with this psalmist here. There continues to be a relentless war within. And this is right after he just got finished encouraging himself to hope in God. But he now goes back to his struggle. We see in in verse 6 where he says, my soul is cast down within me. He goes from saying hope in God to my soul is, is cast down within me. He says, therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar. These are places that were outside of Jerusalem. So he's saying, man, I remember when I used to be in the place where the temple was in Jerusalem. I'm constantly remember you, remembering you. And in verse 7, he says, deep calls to deep. The deep pain that I'm feeling calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I mean, look at the word picture here. It's kind of like a ship, a ship that's out at sea in a, a terrible storm. And the waves are raging and going over the ship. And as soon as they're able to catch their breath, here comes another wave, and as soon as they're able to catch their breath, here comes another wave, and it's flooding the ship. He's like, man, your waves, your waves have gone over me. He's going through it. But I love the fact that he points out that it's God's waves, your waves have gone over me. So it shows that even in our affliction, our trials, God is sovereign over those things, and he's in absolute control. And he has purposes for the afflictions that happen in our life. He has purposes for the trials that we go through. He says his waves, your waves, it is your waves that have gone over me. And then in verse 8, he says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night... His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I love this because we see that in deep distress, there is a deep love that answers. In our deep distress, there is always a deep love that is near, a deep love that is present. When you look at the word, His steadfast love, that word steadfast and then love, in the original Hebrew, it's translated hesed, which means God's covenant love, his loyal love, his unwavering love, his unfailing love. No matter what situation, no matter what circumstance, he's there, always there. Doesn't that remind you? of what we see in Romans 8. And if you could, turn there with me, Romans 8. It's just good to look at it again. We know it well, but it's always good to look at it again. Romans 8, starting at verse 31. 
when we're in despair, may we be reminded, what then shall we say to these things? May we be reminded, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn soul? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us soul? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We need to remind our soul of that truth. When we feel downcast, be reminded of God's steadfast love to you, his unchanging love, his unfailing love to you. In your most deepest, darkest circumstances, he is there, always there. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always there. Verse 9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now, recently I had a moment like this in my own life. A couple of weeks ago, uh, many of you know my son was rushed to the hospital. He had to have an emergency surgery out of nowhere. He kept on having these headaches. headaches and he kept on throwing up, and we were trying to figure out what's going on. And when we brought him into the doctor, we found out that he was developing uh, glaucoma in his eye, that the lens that was in his eye got misplaced, and it was causing pressure inside of his eye. And when the doctors went to go check his eyes, they checked the right one. That was at a pressure of 10. They checked the left one, and that was at a pressure of 35. And they said that the eye ruptures at 60. So they had to make a decision right there to say, listen, we need to operate on him, and we need to do it tonight. I remember thinking, man, my wife is at this conference. Uh, my daughter's gone. I got all the kids with me, and I'm trying to make decisions at that time what to do. Um, I called my wife. I let her know what was going on. She said, honey, I'm going to come home immediately. And I said, honey, listen, even if you started driving now, you wouldn't make it here on time. Um, they said that they're going to operate tonight at 11 o'clock. I want you to stay at the conference. I want you to worship your Lord. I want you to have a good time worshiping Christ our Savior and put your trust and hope in him. And I remember we prayed on the phone crying and weeping. And when 11 o'clock came, here it was. I was handing off my son to now have another surgery. And they told me that he should be done around 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I'm in the waiting room, and I'm by myself. 
There was no one there. And I remember walking back and forth and pacing and looking at the clock consistently. And I really didn't have reception either. So it wasn't like I could really call and talk to anyone. But every once in a while, a text would slip in from one of you. Every once in a while, my phone would vibrate, and somehow that text got through, and I would look at it and receive a little bit of encouragement here and there. But I remember pacing back and forth, the only one in the waiting room. It's dark, and I remember looking at the clock over and over again, and it was 1 o'clock, and then it was 1.15, then 1.30, then eventually it hit 2, and I started getting anxious. And at that time, Every negative thought that you can think of was going through my mind. And as I'm pacing, I'm talking to God. And I was the one who was saying at that time, why have you forgotten me? Here it is, my son has had three surgeries in less than a year, and he's only two. Why have you forgotten? And then I had to stop myself and said, no, hope in God. God, fill me with hope. I need your hope right now because I'm struggling. I need your hope right now because I'm feeling despair. Oh, God, would you help me fill me with hope? And eventually, they brought my son out, and it felt so good just to go see him and hug him and embrace him. But in that time, I was fighting for hope. And I needed God to fill me with hope. So here's a question. What do you do when what you know to be true of God sometimes conflicts with the reality of what you feel? When there seems to be a gap between your head, what you know, and your heart, what you feel. Brothers and sisters, this is what you do. I'm going to tell you what you do. You hold fast to God's promises that are true. Don't allow your feelings or emotions to define what is true when you are fighting for hope. Don't allow your feelings or emotions to define what is true when you are fighting for hope in moments and seasons of despair. Allow God's word to define what is true. We can't base our wavering feelings on what is true. We can't base truth on our wavering feelings, but we must base truth on God's unwavering character. That's what we base truth on, not our wavering feelings, but God's unwavering character. Verse 10 says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. It's one thing to take a sword and pierce someone's flesh. But he says that it's like a wound to my bones as they taunt me. These words are piercing so deeply that he feels it physically. 
I mean, this is the type of depression he's going through. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? They're still taunting him. He's going through all of this, and on the outside, he's still receiving taunts from his enemies. Where is your God? Why didn't he come through? Where is he at? They're mocking him. And he's struggling. He's struggling. He's driven to despair. It's tough for him. But we see that he continues to talk to himself and ask himself questions and assess himself. We see that in verse 11. When the remedy for his despair is revisited... The reason why I say the remedy for his despair is revisited because he says in verse 11 exactly what he said in verse 5. And it's like he's been battling and he comes back to assessing himself again where he says, why are you downcast? I kind of ask you again, why are you downcast, soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. You need to hope in God, soul. You need to get this hope in God. What's going on with you, soul? Why are you down? Hope in God. He's preaching to himself. Hope in God. Psalm 42 ends with the psalmist still in a battle for hope. Notice that it ends there. And even if you look at the, the next psalm, which is Psalm 43, which is a continuation or in connection with this psalm. Um, he says in the beginning, in verse 1, he's like, man, deliver me from my adversaries. Uh, vindicate me, God. But in verse 5, he ends up saying the same thing. Hope in God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation, my God. So the psalm ends, and he's still fighting to encourage his soul, but he's trusting in God, and his heart is pointing towards the victory that he doesn't yet see. But he knows God is with him in the trial. He knows that he's there. He knows that God hasn't forsaken him. So here's another question. So what are we supposed to do when the darkness in our lives won't seem to lift ARC? What are we supposed to do when we're fighting and fighting and fighting for hope, when we're doing what the psalmist here is doing when he's asking himself, himself a question, why are you cast down? What's going on with you? Why are you cast down? And then talking to himself, hope, hope in God, hope in God. What happens when you're consistently doing that and the darkness just won't seem to lift? Whatever it is that you're experiencing, whatever it is you're going through, whatever your trial is, what happens when the darkness won't lift? I wholeheartedly believe this is what we're supposed to do. Wait on the Lord. 
wait on the Lord. Now that sounds so simple, but I assure you it is so biblical. The Bible says, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brothers and sisters, be honest with the Lord with where you're at. He's not afraid of you admitting your pain and struggles to him. He wants you to cast your cares upon him because he's a God that loves you. He's a God that loves us. May we be honest with where we're at. He's not afraid. He welcomes that. And then he points us to his word. And then he fills us with hope. And as we wait, we must remember that our God is faithful. And we take step by step, we take it day by day, and we trust in his faithfulness. And he'll continue to fill us with hope. He'll continue to preserve us. He'll continue to give us faith. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He is a faithful God. So take step by step. With the loved one that just went into the hospital, take step by step. With the loved one who just passed away, just take one day at a time waiting on the Lord. He'll strengthen you. Whatever it is in your life, take it one step at a time, trusting and hoping in the Lord. Notice that in this psalm, it isn't like he just does away with everything. But what happens is he continues to pursue God. Because this is what I believe is something that he understands. He understands that not only God is faithful, but he wants to do whatever he can to know more of God. And in our trials... A lot of times we experience God in a way that we wouldn't experience him if the trials never came. There's something about when we can have fellowship with God through suffering. There's something about a, a communion that we have that happens when we suffer. There's another psalm that says, it was good that I was afflicted so that I may know your law, that the affliction made it possible for him to know more of God. So he's not rescued out of this, but God is with him, strengthening him every step of the way, every moment, and he's getting to know more of God. He's seeing more of how God is a sustainer. He's seeing more of how God is there when he feels like he's going to give up. He doesn't give up because it's not that he's holding on to God. It's because God is holding on to him. I want to end with this quote by Oswald Chambers. It says, It is not our trust that keeps us, 
but the God in whom we trust, who keeps us. It's not our trust that keeps us, but it's the God in whom we trust that keeps us. May God give us the grace to continue to trust in him. Please bow your head and let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that there is hope for the downcast. We praise you, Father, that when we are cast down, your promises fill us with hope. When we can't look nowhere else, may we look to you. Many of us are looking at our situations instead of looking up. Help us lift our head that feels down. For those who are down, help us to lift our head, not to walk in confidence like nothing is going on, but for us to lift our head to the hills to where our help comes from. For us to lift our head to you, God. For us who feel driven to despair, oh, would you give us the strength just to lift our arms enough and total surrenderance and praise to you, handing all of our troubles over to you. Father, for us who feel like we're not shaken right now, would you fill our hearts with prayerful intercession for the brothers and sisters that we know are going through right now in AR at ARC, the brothers and sisters that we know who are struggling. Oh, God, give us a heart of prayerful intercession. So, Father, we, we pray, God, that you would have us hope in you no matter what, whether things are well or whether things seem shaky whether things seem to be going good or whether things seem to be the worst that it's ever been in our lives. May we hope in you. And may we be reminded that whatever it is we go through, whatever trial we experience, whatever suffering we experience, it doesn't compare to the suffering that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. It doesn't compare to the waves of your wrath, God, that won over him when you crushed him in our place. May we be reminded of that truth, and may that cause us to hope in our Savior, who is our rock and our God. Thank you for holding us fast. Thank you, Father, that when we feel that our faith will fail, you hold us fast. God, help us to fix our eyes on the hope that we see in the life of the psalmist. And by your grace, help us to walk in those truths. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.